0: Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette on this Saturday, January 21st. I'm your reader, Wally Helms. As we look at the front page, we see the headline story, Lynn Johnson, Drug-Related Deaths Continue to Rise. This is reported by Emily Anderson. Courtney Hammond was nine months pregnant, sitting at a Texas roadhouse in Coralville, in August 2020, while her partner and the father of her newborn son was dying from drug-related complications at University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Trevor Daniels died August 12, 2020, just a week before Hammond gave birth on August 19, 2020. Because of COVID-19-related hospital restrictions, she wasn't able to visit Daniels before he died. About eight months earlier, shortly after Hammond found out she was pregnant, Daniels had overdosed on heroin. Unable to find Daniels' Narcon, Hammond had called 911, resulting in the couple's apartment being raided and both of them being arrested on drug charges after Daniels was given emergency medical care. Hammond, 31, didn't use heroin herself, But she did use and sell the methamphetamine. She started using meth about 10 years before, after divorcing the father of her now 12-year-old daughter. Prior to using meth, I was on the PTA uh, uh, preschool board. I had a really decent life. I was assistant teacher at a daycare. I was very well off. I just couldn't stand my own reflection and the failure that my marriage had fallen apart, Hammond said. I was someone back then. I just didn't feel like I was, so I fed those feelings with myth." For the next ten years, Hammond was in and out of jail. She gave custody of her daughter to her grandparents and went through multiple abusive relationships before meeting and falling in love with Daniels. I found myself being madly, truly in love with a heroin addict and I had no idea what that was like. I thought meth was the worst that you could get. I didn't even know that loving someone on heroin was primarily just signing up to attend their funeral, Hammond said. After Daniels overdose and their arrests, both Hammond and Daniels went to substance abuse treatment centers. Hammond went on to a private center in Ottumwa, where she was from, and Daniels, who was a veteran, went to a Veterans Affairs Treatment Center in Des Moines. Then the pandemic hit. For Hammond, it was a blessing, the first step in her recovery from addiction. She was locked in treatment, not allowed to leave because of COVID-19 restrictions. For Daniels, the pandemic was a death sentence. The treatment center he was attending shut down and he ended up back out on the streets, eventually dying from health complications related to his drug use. Daniels is one of 21 friends and loved ones that Hammond has lost to overdoses and other drug-related deaths in the past two years. Her story is not unique. In Lynn and Johnson counties, drug-related deaths have been rising consistently since 2018, mirroring national trends. Numbers dropped between 2017 and 2018, likely because in 2017 Narcon, Or naloxalone, a medication that reverses the effects of drug overdoses, was made available over-the-counter in Iowa. But from 2018 to 2022, drug-related deaths increased from 19 to 36 in Lynn County and from 13 to 48 in Johnson County. The need for Narcon also appears to have increased. Johnson area and Lynn area ambulance services both report that the number of times emergency responders have administered Narcon has been increasing with a big jump in both counties in 2020. In Johnson County, Narcon was administered by first responders 29 times in 2019 and that number jumped to 47 in 2020, then decreased to 34 in 2021 and 37 primarily in 2022. In Lynn County, That number jumped from 93 to 135 from 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 2019 to 2020, and then went down to 130 in 2021 and 129 primarily in 2022. But those numbers don't tell the whole story, said Jesse Lennox, a Cedar Rapids firefighter and EMS responder. Back in the day, before Narcon was more easily available, in order to wake someone who overdosed up, their friend would dump a bunch of cold water on them, Lennox said. Now that Narcon is more available, there's a lot of overdoses, and we don't even know that about that. The big thing that we're seeing now is that there's a lot of Narcon given in the field before we even get there, multiple times. Instead of us getting called after the bucket of water didn't work, we're getting called after the first dose didn't work, the second dose didn't work, the third dose is given by police who usually arrive first, and now we're there. So that time is starting to get really stretched out as far as the outcome of the victim. Governor Kim Reynolds in her 2023 condition of the state address on January 10th called on the Iowa State Legislature to increase availability of Narcon by allowing first responders to give it out to the public use to use. Currently, While first responders can administer Narcon in an emergency, only pharmacists can distribute it uh, uh, for public use. The opioid crisis is a human tragedy taking place across this country, and fentanyl has taken center stage. While Iowa maintains one of the lowest overdose death rates in the country, we're still experiencing unacceptable trends, Reynolds said. Overdoses are up by more than 34%, and for Iowans under 25, they're more than double. In 2021, illicit fentanyl was implicated in 83% of all Iowa's opioid-related deaths, compared with just 31% five years ago. These aren't just numbers. They're missing siblings, parents, and friends. They're shattered families and grief-stricken parents. Reynolds also announced the launch of a public awareness campaign to help parents understand the threat of fentanyl and how to protect their kids from it. She urged lawmakers to increase penalties for manufacture and and distribution of fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid that many experts blame for the increase in overdoses in the past few years. Rod Courtney, who runs Crush Recovery Community Center in Cedar Rapids said fentanyl is often mixed into other drugs to make them more addictive. However, people buying the drugs don't always know that fentanyl has been added, which can lead to overdoses because fentanyl is usually much stronger than the drug the person thought they were buying. Fentanyl has been on the increase over the last couple of years for sure, Courtney said. I think the people that sell the drugs are realizing that anything they could do to make their substance more addictive is just money in the bank for them, because it's addiction that brings people back. A proposal outlined on Reynolds' website explains her proposal for increasing penalties by reducing the weight limits at which federal penalties would apply to fentanyl. The proposal would also allow for sentences to be doubled if any controlled substance is delivered to a minor. And doubled or tripled if a fentanyl crime results in serious injury or death. Currently in Iowa, manufacturing, delivering, or possessing with the intent to manufacture or deliver more than ten kilograms of fentanyl or a measure containing fentanyl or a mixture containing fentanyl is punishable by up to fifty years in prison and a fine of up to one million dollars. Reynolds proposal would apply this punishment to anyone with more than 50 grams of fentanyl. Possession of more than 5 kilograms but less than 10 kilograms of fentanyl currently carries a penalty of up to 25 years in prison and a fine of up to $100,000. But Reynolds proposal would apply these punishments to more than 5 grams but less than 50 grams of fentanyl. Having less then 5 grams of fentanyl would carry the punishment currently applied to anything less than 5 kilograms of fentanyl, which is up to 10 years in prison and a fine of $50,000. According to the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration, 2 milligrams of fentanyl equal to 10 to 15 grains of table salt is considered a lethal dose. Fentanyl is 50 times more potent than heroin and 100 times more potent than morphine. Johnson County Attorney Rachel Zimmerman Smith said charges stemming from possession or distribution of fentanyl are becoming more common locally. She said law enforcement is getting better at identifying it, even though it's often disguised as a legal prescription drug or mixed in with other illegal substances. I think that the challenge, from a public safety angle, is the lethality of fentanyl and then being able to identify it in combination with other substances, she said. Many of the fentanyl-related charges come after someone has already been arrested and charged with distributing another drug like heroin, Zimmerman Smith said. The original drug is sent to a lab for processing, and it's discovered that there was fentanyl mixed in. Courtney said he believes the COVID-19 pandemic also played a role in the increase in drug-related deaths in recent years, and he hopes that as pandemic restrictions continue to ease, those deaths might decrease. I know COVID played a big hand. There's a lot of people, myself included, who will say the opposite of addiction is connection. There's nothing more that addiction loves than isolation. It's easier to use in isolation. It's easier to get depressed, Courtney said. We're not completely over that yet, of course, but things are changing where I think people are getting back out. They're starting to socialize more, which is very much a double-edged sword because it also creates more access depending on what your substance is. You're going back out to bars more, you're going back out to parties more, but also you can get out to support groups more easily, he said. For Hammond, the pandemic was an opportunity to reconnect with family and strengthen her support system. After graduating from the Recovery Center program, Hammond moved to Cedar Rapids with her grandmother and children. Being in a new place without much opportunity to socialize helped Hammond remove herself from her drug community. Now Hammond works as a parent partner in Linn County advocating for parents who are working to regain custody of their children. She also works with CRUSH Community Center to support people who are recovering from addictions. Having seen so many people die from overdoses and long-term health complications related to drug use, Hammond said she sees a need for more education and support for people with substance use disorders whether they are seeking recovery or not. You are not ready to quit until you are ready, Hammond said. Drugs are one of the hardest things to be part of and one of the hardest things to come out of. Not everyone can make it in that world, and I'm glad I made it out. The article is accompanied by four pictures by Nick Rollman of the Gazette, one of which is Courtney Hammond, of Marion helping Denny Akers of Cedar Rapids sign up for peer mentorship training courses December 19 at Crush's office in Cedar Rapids and then there's a picture of Courtney Hammond playing with her son Liam Rowan Ro, Daniels now too as she does so Wednesday at her home in Marion and there's a picture of let me get to it of uh, Rod and Debbie Courtney working at Crush's office space, January 12, Cedar Rapids. The Courtney's founded Crush after their son Chad Courtney died of a drug overdose at age 38 in 2016. And finally, there's a picture of Area Substance Abuse Council Prevention Specialist Amy Dorfield as she holds up a Narcon nasal spray during a training session, January 12, at Crush's office space in Cedar Rapids. Now, at the bottom of the front page, we have a story by Trish Mahaffey of the Gazette. The headline, Defense Expert in Jackson Trial Blames Lack of Intruder Evidence on Police Dog. An expert on Police Dog said the dog that couldn't pick up a track for the ele- alleged intruder that Jack Ar- Alexander Jackson said fled his home after killing his family doesn't mean that suspect doesn't exist didn't exist. Kyle Hyen, a former law enforcement officer who now consults on civil civil and criminal cases involving police dog training and handling, said the Cedar Rapids police canine Corsa couldn't track for a suspect because she was panting too much and not breathing or smelling through her nose. The dog was breathing heavily through her mouth, and dogs can't smell through their mouth, he said, which is opposite of what canine officer Kurt Buckle said during testimony last week. Hayen, I'm going to spell his name, H-E-Y-E-N, Hayen, who lives in Custer, South Dakota, said the dog was probably too worked up, excited, or stressed from being in the house and smelling gunpowder, or was just overheated. He pointed out in Buckle's body camera video played last week for the jury various portions that show the dog wasn't sniffing through her nose. Hayen was the first witness for the defense Friday. The prosecution rested in the morning. The trial started last week. The defense will continue its case Monday and closings could be Tuesday. Jackson is charged with three counts of first-degree murder. He's accused of fatally shooting his father John Yan Perry Jackson 61 mother Melissa Fur Jackson 68 and sisters Sabrina Hannah Jackson 19 on June 15 2021 in their Northeast Cedar Rapids home. Before the tracking to find the alleged intruder even started Hayen pointed out on the video that Corsa was rapidly panting. That's how dogs try to cool off. He criticized Buckles for taking Corsa on the concrete when starting to track because that surface would be hotter than a grassy area. Hayen said dogs track ground substance odors, not human scent, the amount and age when someone walked in the area of disturbances. Tyler Johnston, Jackson's lawyer, said Buckles testified they could track human scent, but Haynes said that was wrong. Hayn, in another part of the video, said Corsa went off to the side, put her head down, and was sniffing through her nose, but Buckles didn't follow her out. Instead, he pulled her back, correcting her. Corsa may have been trying to track something, he said. Hayden showed on the video that the dog was still heavily panting as it came close to the Jackson house. He said Buckles should have stopped the track for the dog's sake. Corsa was too hot and couldn't track, he said. Johnson asked Hayden if more time from the event affects the odor. Hayden said it did, that the odor on grass lessens over time. Hayen also discredited Buckles for having Corsa start a track away from the home and then moving toward the house. Hayen said he would have started ten feet from the house, since Jackson said the intruder ran from the back and then moved farther into the backyard. On cross-examination, Assistant Lynn County Attorney Jordan Shire asked Hayen if it was 1991 when the last he last handled a dog as a certified canine officer. Hayen said yes. Scheiger said, wasn't it true that Hayen didn't agree with the standards of national police dog organizations that most dogs and handlers go through for training and certifications? Hayen said he didn't agree because they don't have the proper training he agrees with the German standards where Hayen trained and some other organizations that use strict standards Shire asked if Hayen said dogs can't smell human odor Odor. Hayen said he didn't say that he said they can smell human odor on a track of ground disturbances not over concrete or gravel Shire then pointed out some studies that found dogs can track human order on concrete and that human odor can fall off a person on a track area. In other defense testimony, Levi Gritton, a former Boy Scout leader, said Jackson earned his Eagle Scout badge in 2017. He had known Jackson since 2014. Gritton said Jackson received 34 merit badges during his time in Boy Scouts. Those included ones for citizenship in the community camping, archery, communication, family life, fingerprinting, first aid, rifle shooting, and many others. Gritton said Jackson was proficient with a 22 caliber rifle, like the gun used to kill his family. He said Jackson was responsible and that he counted on Jackson to help mentor the, the younger scouts during activities. Shire, on cross-examination, asked when was the last time he had contact with Jackson. Gritton said, 2017. He wasn't familiar with what kind of relationship Jackson had with his father and sister. Shire asked if being prepared in any situation was part of being an Eagle Scout, and Gritton agreed. A friend of Jackson, Ryan Burack, 21, of University of Northern Iowa student, said he and Jackson hung out a lot playing board and video games online. He thought of Jackson as being mild-mannered. He wasn't a violent person. They were in band together at Kennedy High School Cedar Rapids, where Burke played the saxophone and Jackson played the flute. Burick said he and Jackson played video games online June 14, 2021, the night before the murders. They played until 11 p.m. They usually played board games or card games online, but also played Halo and other shooting games a few times a week. First Assistant Lynn County Attorney Monica Slaughter on Cross asked if Burick had different viewpoints from Jackson. Burick said he did. Slaughter asked if he ever saw Jackson fighting with his sister or arguing with his dad. Burke said he didn't. Slaughter then asked if Jackson had ever told him his sister was bisexual. Burrick said no. The article is accompanied by a couple of pictures by Nick Rollman of the Gazette. The first is uh, Kyle Hayen testifying as an expert witness on the law enforcement use of canines during the trial of Alexander Jackson at the Lynn County Courthouse, Cedar Rapids, Friday. And then there's another picture as I scroll down, is the public defender Tyler Johnson examining a witness Friday during the trial and uh, that's those the two pictures included in the article. And now we turn to the Gazette's editorial on the inside page Drop Harmful LGBTQ Bills Republicans who control the Iowa legislature are pushing ahead with bills that would prohibit schools from mentioning the reality of LGBTQ Iowans in curriculum and forcing school staff to inform parents if a student is transgender, even if the student resists disclosure. These bills should be rejected. House File 8 prohibits any curriculum lessons or classroom materials that mention sexual orientation or gender identity for students grades K-3 through SF83 would ban material and lessons discussing gender identity through 8th grade. It's similar to Florida's infamous Don't Say Gay Law. House File 9 bans schools from declining to inform parents if a student is transgender. School staff cannot willfully withhold that information, and districts cannot offer support policies to transgender students without written permission from parents. We would hope most transgender students feel comfortable sharing information with their parents, but we're not naive enough to expect that's always the case. A student clearly knows their home situation better than school officials and certainly state lawmakers. Outing a student before they are ready can lead to serious consequences. We wonder if lawmakers are willing to own the harm this legislation might cause to already marginalized kids. Turning school staff into mandatory informers denies transgender students a support system at school. We know st- st- suicide rates are high among trans students and that even having even one supportive adult in their lives can cut the rate of suicides. Do lawmakers really want to put transgender kids in danger simply to score political points with their conservative supporters? Prohibiting the mention of sexual orientation or gender identity flies in the face of anti-bullying policies that must include rules against bullying and harassing LGBTQ students. How can students learn about these policies if teachers are under a gag order dictating that they are not that they not address the reality of students these policies are designed to protect. These bills clearly are intended to cause a chilling effect in Iowa's public schools with regard to including the existence of LGBTQ Iowans in lessons. They're meant to send a message that being LGBTQ is wrong, threatening and a subject to be avoided. The truth is LGBTQ Iowans are students in our classrooms, teachers in our schools, our neighbors, family and friends. What sort of educational system denies students the opportunity to learn about the world as it exists, not as some politicized facsimile conjured from a desire to discriminate and deny the humanity of people who live in our communities? It is not the education Iowa kids deserve. That was the Gazette's editorial in today's edition. We have one community letter and it's submitted by Carol O'Donnell of Marion. Community Letters. Public schools in Iowa need public funding. Public schools in Iowa serve anyone living in their districts, regardless of skill level or background. They provide programs for children who excel, who need remediation, are typically developing, have emotional needs, or do not speak English. As a former elementary principal, I frequently heard parents express gratitude that their average child was in a classroom that offered diversity. It was important to them that their children learn tolerance and group work skills at a young age. Knowing these experiences would serve them well in a future career. Public schools in Iowa are the great equalizer. Every child is given the opportunity to master the needed skills to be successful in life. Resources are provided to all children as needed. Six-year-olds came to school in August 2021 not being able to write their name, while their peers were starting to read chapter books. Educators worked even harder to determine what each child needed and prioritize those needs within our limited resources. Following educational savings accounts, allowing educational savings accounts takes away from the inclusive environment of public education. It also takes away from our already limited resources at a time when the need for those resources is increasing. The children in public schools today are the workers of tomorrow. They will be the doctor performing your mother's heart surgery, the pilot flying you to your vacation, or the plumber fixing your burst pipe. Don't we want the best education possible for all of them? That was the community letter submitted by Carol O'Donnell of Marion. Syndicated columnist Lenore Skinazi writes more stuff for parents to buy. Walking wings aren't wings. The product is a vest that goes around your baby with long straps on the top that you can yank to pull them upright, like a marionette. According to its marketing materials, this vest ensures your kid will take fewer tumbles, which will help to build his confidence. As if kids don't build confidence from learning to walk without this contraption. Meanwhile, a set of emotional flashcards boasts... Teach your student emotional intelligence, EQ. IQ gets you through school, but EQ gets you through life. According to the product description, quote, a high-quality photograph on the front of each card teaches a child to label emotions, unquote, while, quote, the back of each card teaches a child how these emotions feel and when they could occur, unquote. And then there's the the Jim Baree website which promises special classes and equipment where children can develop strength confidence awareness all the stuff that you might think kids develop automatically because they do. If these products and services were only for children with developmental challenges of course they'd make sense. Some kids do need help walking or reading faces but Quote, many of these items that came originally from the field of special needs moved into the mainstream, unquote, says Tova Klein, editor of How Toddlers Thrive and director of the Bernard College Center for Toddler Development. More and more, they're being marketed to parents of neurotypical children. When my friend Ray and his husband took their two-year-old to a kiddie gym, Their son did not get to just run around. Instead, the children must be formally instructed in things like balancing and tumbling. At the end of the session, parents can be sure this time has not been wasted. That, in a nutshell, is childhood today. Kids may come into the world burning to play, do, learn, tumble, but adults have decided this cannot happen without a lot of intervention supervision and assistance. Increasingly all children are treated as if they have special needs. They are assumed to require help with even basic functions. The message is that if you don't teach your child this, they may not be good at it, says Klein, this being anything. Marketers are speaking to a generation of parents already primed to worry that their infant children could fall behind from day one and miss that slot at Harvard. But the gadgets and programs pushed by the child assistance complex represent, quote, a disrespect for children or a misunderstanding of what early development is, unquote, Klein says. He goes on, the reason children play is because they are driven to the core to explore their world. Kids don't need special toys to kickstart empathy. They don't need special vests to learn to walk. They just need a little space and time. What the adults in our culture are forgetting is that childhood is not therapy. Once children, once parents realize this, they can stop being so worried and sad. That was the guest column by Lenore Skenazi, syndicated columnist distributed by Creators. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, on this Saturday January 21st on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Now let's turn to today's obituaries. Enlisted among the other notices, Fern Carey 99, died Thursday January 19, Murdoch Linwood, Funeral Home and Cremation Service. And that was from Cedar Rapids. This is from Center Point. Jim Jones, 88, died Thursday, January 19th, the Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service. From Montour, Patrick Pat Johnson, 71, of Holiday Lake and formerly of Montour, died Thursday, January 19th, Cruz Phillips Funeral Home, Tama, Toledo. Wakan Linda J. Handke, 64, of La Crosse, Wisconsin, formerly of Wacon, died Wednesday, January 28th, the Martin Grau Funeral Home. And among other deaths, Wayne J. Ramholes, 81 of Moline, Illinois, died Monday, January 16th, Henderson Barker Funeral Home, West Liberty. And from Cedar Rapids, on our regular notices, Kimberly Kim K. Unkrich died at the age of 60, and uh, she died on Wednesday, January 18th at the Mayo Clinic Methodist Campus in Rochester, Minnesota. The service will be at noon Monday at T. Han Funeral Home by Penny Ackerman, the burial St. Joseph's Cemetery. Friends may visit with the family Monday uh, at, from 9 a.m. to noon at the funeral home, the memorials may be directed to the family, and online condolences may be left at the uh, funeral home. That's the Tihan Funeral Home, and that's for Kimberly Kim K. Unkrich of Cedar Rapids. Monica Caroline Smith of Cedar Rapids. Died at the age of 35 on January 19th. The Brash Chapel is assisting the family. She Monica will be cremated. The family will be holding a celebration of life at North Point on Center Point Road, 2 to 5 p.m. Sunday, January 22nd, for Monica Caroline Smith of Cedar Rapids, Richard Dick Frank Schuler of Cedar Rapids died on January 19th visitation Sunday January 22nd at 11 a.m. at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories followed by a funeral service at 2 p.m. private burial will take place at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery in lieu of flowers memorials may be made to St. Luke's Hospice on behalf of the family and in memory of Richard Dick Frank Schuler of Cedar Rapids, Ross Allen Zeski, I'll spell that last name Z A E S K E. Ross Allen Zeski, Holiday, Florida. He was he died at 60 at the age of 64, and Ross was formerly from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. He died on January 16th. Visitation and services were held Friday, January 20th. Uh, at 1 o'clock at the Brandon Cremation and Funeral Service in Brandon, Florida. Memorials may be directed to the family on behalf of his grandchildren. Earlene Knapp Stuck, 82, passed away peacefully on Thursday, January 19th at the Keystone Nursing Center, Atkins. Funeral Services, 11 a.m. Tuesday, January 24th, St. Stephen's Lutheran Church, Atkins, the Reverend Douglas Woltmath officiating. Interment will be held at St. Stephen's Cemetery. Visitation 9 a.m. until the service time Tuesday at the church in Atkins. A memorial fund has been established for St. Stephen's Lutheran Church on behalf of Erlene Knapp Stook of Atkins. From Toledo, Mark J. Cuthbertson sixty two passed away on Saturday december twenty fourth at his home in rural Tama County. There will be no services scheduled at this time for Mark J. Cuthbertson of Toledo. From Hills, Stephen Robert Verconde, I'm going to spell the last name V E R C A N D E. Stephen Robert Verconde or Vercond uh, was age 49 when he died on Wednesday, January 18th, at the UI hospitals and clinics of an unexpected cerebral hemorrhage. Massive Christian burial, 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 24th, St. Patrick Catholic Church. The funeral mass will be live-streamed. To watch the live-stream, you visit the St. Patrick's YouTube channel, and you can find that uh, at St. Patrick Church, Iowa City, Iowa. Visitation, Monday, January 23rd, 4 to 7 p.m. at Lensing Funeral Cremation Service, Iowa City. The rosary will be recited at 3 p.m. Burial, St. Joseph's Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, memorial contributions may be made to the Hill's first responders or in support of the University of Iowa College of Dentistry, Priorities Fund to the University of Iowa Center for Advancement um, uh, then you can make note that it's uh, in memory of Stephen Vercande Online condolences of Steve may be shared with his family at LansingFuneral.com That's for Stephen Robert Vercande of Hills And that concludes the list of obituaries in today's Gazette and now we turn to the sports page for a, a prep basketball story. This is from Ogden Mule, M U H L Mule, closing in on another milestone. Kirkwood women's basketball coach Kim Mule was asked Wednesday what the number was. Mule was not a numbers guy, so he wasn't sure. He knew it was 900 something. That number is at 995 career wins, heading into today's game against Iowa Lakes Community College, scheduled for 1 p.m. at Johnson Hall. The date to circle on the calendar, though, is February 8th, assuming the defending national champion Eagles win their next five games, a fairly safe bet considering they are 17-1 and ranked third nationally. Mule will register win number 1,000 that night. It's kind of crazy, Mule said, adding he hasn't really thought much about another milestone. I haven't had the time to think about it. This season is flying by. But let's pause for a moment and not let this moment fly by. 1,000 wins is a pretty big deal at any level. It's been done. Former Duke men's coach Mike Krzyzewski ended his career with an NCAA record, 1,202 wins, and Stanford women's coach Tara Van Devere, has 1,020 and counting. Kim, 67, has been Kirkwood women's basketball coach since 1989. He was at Norway High School as girls basketball and baseball coach, but saw consolidation coming and wanted no part of it. I didn't think I'd be coaching women's basketball, he said. I applied for the men's job. He didn't get that, but was offered the women's job. He had a shot at that men's job before the 1996-97 season, but I stayed and we won the national championship. The first of eight national championships, by the way. Stop and think about that, too. Eight NJCAA titles over 33 seasons. That includes four in a row from 2007 to 2010. Stop and consider these tidbits, too. He has never had a losing season. The worst loss total was 11 in 1993-94. He has taken 30 teams to the regional finals, 20 to national tournaments. He has had 33 straight 20-win seasons, including 37 wins in 2009-2010, and a 37-0 mark in 2016-2017. Th- in Over the past five years, his teams have won 133 games and lost 15. He has been named Regional Coach of the Year 20 times, Coach of the National Championships 8 times, and he is in the NJCAA Women's Basketball Hall of Fame he'll be inducted into the Kirkwood Athletes Hall of Fame on February 3rd. In his own words, Mule has kind of created a monster. We created something a lot of people never thought was possible, he said. A basketball standout at Lost Nation High School and William Penn University, Mule said he never could have imagined this in his younger days. He didn't even know what he wanted to do until he was close to 30, It took me forever to figure it out, he said. I just knew I loved basketball. I loved baseball, too. He obviously chose wisely. Mule has grown, learned, and seen a lot over his long career. He's been through everything with his athletes, from video game distractions to social media issues. Everybody says the kids are changing, he said. You still have problems. They just are different problems. He is most proud of the consistency of the program has sustained over his 34 years. It started with a 26-9 campaign in 1989-90 in and has really never wavered. But all good things must come to an end. In 2019, after winning his 900th game, Mule said he'd lost my mind if he retired. Three years and many bus rides later, his tune is changing. He finds himself wondering why the hell am I on this bus after long rides to and from the Kirkwood campus more often these days. It's getting closer he said adding he'll likely be a snowbird but he and his wife Frida never want to be far from their grandchildren. It's coming sooner than later. Stop and appreciate what Mule has established, accomplished. Don't let the moment fly by. And there is a picture accompanying the article Taken by Savannah Blake of the Gazette, the caption, Kirkwood women's basketball coach Kim Mule reacts to a no-call during a 2021 game at Johnson Hall in Cedar Rapids. Mule is closing in on his 1,000th career win. We have a girls' basketball story reported by Jeff Linder. Lions tame Trojans. The Lions made up Linmar didn't take a free throw in the first half. The Lions made up for it later, both in quantity and quality. Foul shots allowed Class 5A 13th ranked Linmar to keep number 10 Iowa City West at arm's length late, and the Lions completed a season sweep of the Trojans 58-48 in a Mississippi Valley Conference girls' basketball contest last night at Linmar High School. Like I told the girls, there are no down nights in our league, Lions coach Chad Tompkins said. This was a good win against a quality team. Now it's about sustaining it. When the Lions, now 10-5, and 6-3 and 3 in the Valley Conference, are on their game, they're a major headache for anybody. Ask Waterloo West, or Cedar Rapids Xavier, or Iowa City West, twice. Western Colorado University signee Zoe Kennedy registered 23 points, 13 in the fourth quarter, and a career-high 14 rebounds. After West, now 11-4 and 6-2 in the conference, cut a 12-point deficit to 42-38, Kennedy drilled a three-pointer to stifle the Trojans' challenge. Then, at 47-41, she and Taylor Bunce Brunson combined for 11 of 12 at the line in the final three minutes one second we talk about keeping energy no matter what Kennedy said we've got to continue with the energy and the unselfishness this was a big one tonight all told the Lions were seventeen of eighteen from the stripe in the second half Linmar didn't trail all night, scoring the first six points. After West matched that, the Lions tallied the next nine and led the rest of the way. Brunson supplied 14 points. Freshman Drea Kern added nine points, hitting her first three three three-point tries. Dartmouth signee Mina Tate led West with 12 points. Anna Prouty and Lucy Wolfe scored 10 apiece, with Prouty grabbing 9 rebounds. And now we turn back to the top stories page, uh, report by Marissa Payne. State awards international paper in Cedar Rapids, $1.2 million in tax incentives. International Paper's $103 million expansion of its Cedar Cedar River Mill facility was awarded $1.2 million in state tax incentives Friday, supporting its proposed development of a more sustainable structure that will reduce greenhouse gas emissions by more than 20% in the coming years. The Iowa Economic Development Authority Board approved tax credits for the company one of the world's leading producers of renewable corrugated packaging and cellulose fibers toward its new 20,000 square foot facility on the existing mill site at 4600 C Street Southwest adjacent to the paper machine buildings. At the company's Iowa manufacturing locations, International Paper creates material for fiber-based packaging products. The key segments served include e-commerce, processed food and beverage, fruit and vegetables, protein distribution, and durable non-durable goods. The project was eligible for state incentives under Iowa's high-quality jobs program and ultimately received $800,000 in investment tax credits and $400,200 in sales, service, use tax refund. This is a major investment in Cedar Rapids and a testament to our economic development and growth strategies city manager jeff pomerantz said in a statement this project demonstrates international paper's commitment to cedar rapids we are proud to support their investment and look forward to the positive impact it will have on our community according to the ieda documents the cedar rapids facility pays a 30.24 dollar hourly wage, above the state's high-quality jobs threshold of $25.20. The project will keep 240 jobs in the city and create even more, according to the City of Cedar Rapids. The company congratulated its employees and thanked the City of Cedar Rapids and the state on Friday. This investment is a direct reflection of your hard work and dedication to our customers, and reflects the company's commitment to the community and our industrial packaging business, J. Royalty, Senior Vice President, Container Board at International Paper, said of the employees. The Cedar Rapids City Council last week approved awarding city incentives a 10-year declining scale exemption of the increased value the project generates. Based on the proposed investment, the City estimates the project will generate $2.337 million in new taxes over a 10-year period, of which $961,000 will be exempt. International papers Cedar River Mill, located in Cedar Rapids, currently purchases processed steam from Alliant Energy's Prairie Creek Generating Station. By 2026, Alliant Energy will no longer burn coal at its Prairie Creek Generating Station, so this international paper location will lose steam supply on December 31, 2025. The proposed project will offer a new steam supply to enable International Paper's continued operations at the Cedar River Mill. The project calls for the construction of a two story building to house the package boilers, water treatment systems, and associated supporting systems. Additionally, the project, the development would reduce Cedar River Mill's total carbon emissions as international paper transitions away from purchased steam using coal-fired boilers to on-site steam production through the use of two new natural gas-fired package boilers, according to the IEDA. Water treatment equipment will be installed to provide water to the new boilers. The new building will include transitions for direct access to the operating and ground floors. To accommodate the new structure and equipment, according to the IEDA, underground water, fire water, and a process sewer will be rerouted at the building site. A new natural gas line to the mill site will support the package boilers. Ron Corbett, Cedar Rapids Metro Economic Alliance's Vice President of Economic Development, said the project demonstrates the the company's support of the mill and the city. There was tremendous community excitement when the recycling paper mill was announced back in the early 1990s, Corbett said in a statement. Almost 30 years later, the commitment by International Paper continues with this latest $100 million investment. Of the $103 million capital investment, $20 million will go toward building expansion and $83 million will cover machinery and equipment. One of our economic development goals is to retain and grow our community's existing businesses. This investment checks all the boxes, Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell said in a statement. International paper is a leader in resource recovery. This project will ensure a long-standing Cedar Rapids business can continue to serve our community's sustainability goals and provide high-quality jobs for our workforce. Site work is anticipated to begin in November, with construction starting in November 2024. The new steam plant is slated to become operational at the end of 2025, and will be tested to support mill operations by January 1, 2026, according to the IEDA. The article is accompanied by pictures of three people mentioned in the article, Jeff Pomerance, City Rapids City Manager Ron Corbett, Metro Economic Alliance, and Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell. And that does it for today's reading of the Cedar Rapid Gazette on this Saturday, January 21st. I'm your reader, Wally Helms. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening.